The following podcast is banned in the state of Florida for talking about a dangerous leftist book, the Bible. Like the Bible, this podcast contains frank discussions on sensitive topics, including sex, violence, and cursing. Please proceed with caution. Those who oppress the poor insult their maker, but those who are kind to the needy honor God. This is the word in black and red. Hello, and welcome to The Word in Black and Red, where we read the Bible from a leftist and liberationist perspective to elucidate the way people of faith and their comrades can understand the Bible as a source of healing, love, and liberation for all people. I'm your host, Michael Belong, the wise old Lama MB, joined today by our regular co-host, L, but also by the hosts of a wonderful podcast, Barefoot to Emmaus, Char and Byron. I have to tell y'all, I first listened to an episode of the podcast, Barefoot to Emmaus, that was on kink and the proper relationship that we have with God. And I think that it was just one of the best elucidations of submission to God and, and fear of God that, that I've ever heard explained in this context of a mutualistic relationship based on trust and covenant rather than I have to be terrified of God because otherwise God is going to smite me um, kind of scenario. <laughs> and so, um, so I absolutely love that part of the episode. If y'all would tell me a little bit more about your political tendency, your religious background, what you're doing today, and any insights into kink theology, that our audience needs to know before we go into this passage. <laughs> so as far as political tendency, the easiest way to describe it is anarcho-communist. I know that these phrases mean a lot to a lot of different people. Basically for me, um, I look at the early church in Acts 2 and 4 and say, hey, that looks like a pretty good way to live. And I think, you know, the, the U.S. empire is the most violent empire that the world has ever known. And we can't just reform the state that, you know, it was founded on violence. It was founded on colonial oppression and there isn't redemption for this vehicle. And so when I say anarcho-communist, basically what I mean is we do best when we're in actual relationship with one another. And that relationship is one that is both, you know, uh, egalitarian to the greatest extent that we can have where we are in true relationship with one another, not dominated by a state and a militarized police force but also communistic in the sense that we truly see each other's needs as being our own and that we reach out and care and love in all ways that we can. So that would be essentially my political affiliation leanings. As far as religious background, I grew up Christian. I would say that the same model or vision of life holds for my faith as it does for my politics. I don't know if we can really separate politics from faith if we're being really honest with ourselves. And so as far as where I'm heading in the future, I'm, I'm looking to start a community that's modeled after the early apostolic church and spread this, this gospel message in a way that um, the church doesn't have to look like a one day a week new form of uh, social control, but that it is actually a revolutionary way to live in love, a radical love that is uh, submissive to the needs of the whole, that we can both acknowledge ourselves to be uh, made in the image of God, but then also a collective image of God that we that we serve as well. So I think that kind of ties a little bit with kink. <laughs> you know, there, there's a sense that um, we are submissive, and, and and this word I think can have such negative connotation because it's been used so violently. Submit to authority, submit to power. You know, and then the sense of submitting to God in that we imagine God like the state. We imagine God going to punish us and and you know our carceral imaginations come from the same capacities that that we we see power as being something that is violent but i actually think power in its truest form is beautiful and so submission to true power is what we were created for that is you know like if we can't cry out the rocks themselves will cry out that is the order of creation to be in loving relationship of submission and we see in god's all-powerful nature that god submitted god's self to us as well so there's this mutual sense of submission that is where we find life and i can't imagine it any other way 
So often we read Ephesians 5 as wives submit to your husbands, and then we forget that the rest of the passage is, and husbands submit to your wives so much that you will die for her, right? Not just submit the way that the Romans expect wives to submit, but husbands go out so much even more to submit, submit even more than you're supposed to, because that mutualistic submission is the model of love that we are given by a God who died so that we would live. I think it's Philippians where Jesus says, uh, where, where the Bible talks about how though being equal with God, Christ gave up power to come to us yeah. and to become one with us, uh, even to death on a cross. So that to me led to this idea a long time ago, even before I met Mackenzie Costello, who I just have to shout out as the person who was on the podcast with us presenting uh, a lot of her experience with kink and theology and stuff. And so this idea of kenosis, of Christ's self-emptying to our level and below that, while still maintaining that sense of relational safety and control, so to speak, sort of takes the horror out of the violence of the cross and allows it to actually become grace. And to me, that just screamed this theological Jesus power bottom move which just <laughs> was my favorite thing for years, even before I met uh, Mackenzie and started actually thinking about uh, kink theology and things. Uh, for me, the other, I'm going kind of out of order here, but the, the other aspect of kink theology that just speaks out to me is the queer aspect. Not that kink has to be a queer thing, but that because of that sense of marginalization and because of that need for exploration, it's the queer community that has access to this incredible uh, depth of, of self-knowledge and, and knowledge of the other. That just leads to fuller, deeper life. So that's, that's at least, I don't know, a little bit more from that kink theology, queer theology side of things. My own identities that kind of see how I approach theology is, first of all, yeah, queer theology, but also I have an undergraduate degree in ocean science. And so this aspect of understanding the world kind of through the systems of screw around and try out and find out, like, that's just science. <laughs> and so, I don't know, all of these things kind of work together pretty well in my mind. So then political tendency, I, I don't know, I have to say, I don't claim to be the most well-versed in political vocabulary or, or activism necessarily. I recognize everything as political, uh, so I don't, I don't demean it. But I don't know, my, my own relationship is as a learner, I think, uh, at this point in my life still. I resonate with the, with the socialism, but hate the amount of structure and totalitarianism that sometimes has to go with that amount of like top-down forced sharing, kind of. Some of that might be out of my ignorance of how some of these things work, but, but I don't know. <laughs> I confess that I, you know, I kind of like the whole uh, Jesus as, as Lord thing, like, Fundamentally, benevolent dictators totally work as long as they're benevolent. <laughs> so, you know, there's the kicker. <laughs> well, welcome to anarcho-communism, right? Um, <laughs> so, uh, I am much more willing to say uh, Jesus is Lord and there is no other, right? Where they're even as benevolent a dictator as we could possibly have, they're not. They're still going to be rooted in violence and death, the, the sin and death that was ultimately defeated by Christ on the cross, right? And so that that is where my Christian anarchism comes from. And Byron, I, I don't mean to uh, prescribe for you what you think, but <laughs> that sounds like anarcho-communism to me. <laughs> so... <laughs> I, I've been working on him for a while, so... Okay, okay. Yeah. <laughs> I have good friends. I've been trying to radicalize him. Well, you know, to be fair, the first time I heard an arco synaglist commune was from Monty Python, so... Yes. It started yeah. young. Our early exposure, yeah. Oh, oh, I'm <laughs> so. being repressed. <laughs> well, y'all, this is going to be a wonderful episode. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and jump right on into the text so we can get started talking about uh, the way that these theological implications affect this particular story. Genesis 22. After these events, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham. Abraham answered, I'm here. God said, take your son, your only son whom you love, Isaac, and go to the land of Moriah. Offer him up as an entirely burnt offering there on one of the mountains that I will show you. Abraham got up early in the morning, harnessed his donkey, and took two of his young men with him, together with his son Isaac. He split the wood for an entirely burned offering, set out, 
and went to the place God had described to him. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place at a distance. Abraham said to his servants, Stay here with the donkey. The boy and I will walk up there, worship, and then come back to you. Abraham took the wood for the entirely burnt offering and laid it on his son Isaac. He took the fire and knife in his hand, and the two of them walked on together. Isaac said to his father Abraham, My father? Abraham said, I'm here, my son. Isaac said, Here is the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the entirely burnt offering? Abraham said, The lamb for the entirely burnt offering? God will see to it, my son. The two of them walked on together. They arrived at the place God had described to him. Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. He tied up his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to kill his son as a sacrifice. But the Lord's messenger called out to Abraham from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, Abraham said, I'm here. The messenger said, Don't stretch out your hand against the young man, and don't do anything to him. I now know that you revere God and didn't hold back your son, your only son, from me. Abraham looked up and saw a single ram, caught by its horns in the dense underbrush. Abraham went over, took the ram, and offered it as an entirely burnt offering instead of his son. Abraham named that place, The Lord Sees. That is the reason people today say, On this mountain, the Lord is seen. The Lord's messenger called out to Abraham from heaven a second time, and said, I give my word as the Lord that because you did this and didn't hold back your son, your only son, I will bless you richly and I will give you countless descendants, as many as the stars in the sky and as the grains of sand on the seashore. They will conquer their enemy cities. All the nations of the earth will be blessed because of your descendants, because you obeyed me. After Abraham returned to the young men, they got up and went to Beersheba where Abraham lived. After these events, Abraham was told, Milcah has now also given birth to sons for your brother Nahor. There are Uz, his oldest son, Buzz, his brother, Kemael, the father of Aram, Chesed, Hazo, Pildash, Jilfloth, and Bethuel. Bethuel became the father of Rebekah. These are the eight Milcah bore for Nahor, Abraham's brother. His secondary wife's name was Reomah, and she gave birth to Tabah, Gaham, Tahash, and Makkah. There are a lot of things that stand out to me as as a little bit strange in this text. First off, we we remember that Hebrew, long-time listeners, you remember that Hebrew rhymes by repeating itself, right? And so here in this story, we see these three rhymes that are really central. Abraham saying, I'm here, in response to God, and then in response to his son, and then once again to God's messenger. And within each of those passages— Abraham is reminded that Isaac is his only son. But what is Ishmael? Chop liver? Ishmael is totally forgotten here in, in this story that is all about the sacrifice uh, of Isaac. And uh, I'm really interested in y'all's takes here, but I think that for me, this is really good evidence that this story is happening in isolation to the broader story of Abraham. That this story of Abraham and Isaac is something that, uh, when it was being redacted by the authors, wasn't in conversation with the rest of the story of Abraham to say, Abraham actually did have this other son, Ishmael, but it's instead this isolated account that is older than the rest of the text that is a story that just has Abraham and Isaac as the central characters, as Isaac is the only person that can continue on the line of Abraham. Um, I don't think it completely dismisses Ishmael. I feel like, well, when God says, take your son, the beginning of that line feels like it's more of a back and forth between God and Abraham to me. Like, take your son. Abraham's like, which son? Well, I got two sons. Uh, Your only son whom you love, which is like specifying Mm. the promised son, the one that God promised him, not the one that like Sarah and Hagar came together to produce. Uh, came together but, is, a, is an interesting uh, reframing of that story, <laughs> Elle. <laughs> I, I feel like Ishmael's not left out, but is like, like he is, but he isn't. Like there's, there's specifier to like make sure Abraham knows that God's talking about Isaac, the, the covenant son. Mm. Yeah, I I hear what I hear what you're saying. I guess I hadn't noticed if there was an indicator one way or the other. My I have my Bible open in front of me. I prefer the Jerusalem translation, and it's got great notes. 
Um, this one happens to say, the very first comment of chapter 22 says, the narrative is commonly credited to the Eloistic stream or tradition, but includes Yahwistic elements, uh, specifically verse mm. 11, 14, 15, and 18. But also this idea of... So, I mean, this is really cool that we're talking about this at this point. Uh, in the Presbyterian lectionary, this just got preached on last week. So mm -hmm. I got to hear one of my close friends <laughs> preach on this. And she had some really interesting things to say, specifically about how old was Isaac here. And because of the way that this narrative probably isn't in line chronologically, or that there are some, some issues, as you were saying, Micah, with redaction, it's unclear if... Isaac is a little kid, or if he's a teenager, maybe, or even if he's a full-on adult. Mm -hmm. And that has interesting implications as to whether or not, like, Ishmael is still around, or whether or not uh, Isaac could have fought back, even, against this 99-year-old dude. So, yeah, yeah, great place to start. Great question. Well, and I think that the is Ishmael even around at this point is a is a perhaps a harken back to the fact that Abraham has not loved Ishmael in the way that he should be loving his son, right? Where Abraham is um, so all in on Isaac that he rejects Ishmael. He sends Hagar and Ishmael away when Ishmael is just a young man. And so this idea that Ishmael becomes a wild ass of a man perfectly makes sense when you consider that his dad was such an asshole that he, he didn't, um, you know, that he says that God can indicate the son that you love, Isaac, right? And I think that, I, I want to take that verse, if we do think that this story is is thinking about Ishmael as well, this, this is an indictment uh, on God's part against Abraham. Take the one that you love, not the other one that you have, but the one that you love unfairly, and that will be the sacrifice that you have to provide. Well, I, I also think that Isaac is the one that Abraham loves because Isaac is tied up in like Abraham's entire mission mm -hmm. in life. This is like Isaac's part of his ego itself. Mm. And I feel like this whole story is about how Abraham is kind of like, he's willing to sacrifice his selfhood because it's Abraham, I don't think cares about his own life that much. It's all mm. been about the progeny, Isaac. So this is, this is God asking him to kill his own ego, essentially. Before before we jump on to um, Freudian takes on this, uh, <laughs> I, I do think, uh, which I think is an excellent point, Al. I think that you know, we to bring this back to a leftist perspective, right? That God is indicting Abraham for uh, for having a son that he loves, and that is the darling that uh, that he has to murder, right? Is that um, in our own society, we have a society that is set up with the people that our society loves, and then there's the rest of us, right? And the people that we love, right, or the people that our society loves are straight white cis men with a lot of money, right? And... <laughs> And then there's the rest of us, the, the rest of us who are left on the outside, who aren't even mentioned in this story. And that is what God is indicting Abraham of. He's saying, you have to give up this thing. Now, we can look later in the story and see that God still has mercy uh, and still interrupts on behalf of those people. But I think that it's worth noting that this, this is something that God is condemning Abraham for here and saying, you have to give up the thing that is, that is most precious to you. It's so easy for us to get caught up into binaristic ways of thinking, good and bad, etc. And so we can look at these stories and see the way that Abraham treats Ishmael and say, well, he hated him, at least comparatively to how he loved Isaac. But I think what's interesting is that he in this story, if we go back uh, a chapter, is really just a pushover. You know, mm -hmm. Sarah has this envy. Sarah is the one who feels insecure about her standing and her son's standing with Hagar and Ishmael still in the picture. And um, if I can just read really briefly here from chapter yeah. uh, 21, she says, get rid of that slave woman and her son, right? There's the condemnation of the outsider, of the marginalized. Mm -hmm. They don't deserve to be here. And class, absolutely. For that woman's son will never share in the inheritance of my son, Isaac. 
So this is Sarah, and I'm not trying to say this in like a, a gender binary way either, but just more the commentary that if we are just centering Abraham in the Genesis 22 story, we have to understand the context of the voices, the input that he's receiving here. So he hears this, and it says in verse 11, the matter distressed Abraham greatly because it concerned his son. So I see here that there is in fact a love for Ishmael. However, it is not a love that is strong enough to overcome the voices that he is being pressured by. Mm-hmm. And so it's it's so easy for us to look at society and say, oh, um, you know, I'm not like one of those racists. I'm not like one of those, you know, whatever, because I have compassion. I have whatever. But the reality is, if our lives don't represent the same kind of commitment and integrity to love, to an equity of love that mm-hmm. makes sure that all people and all of their needs are met, it doesn't matter <laughs> because yeah. Ishmael is still exiled because of the words of Sarah. So yeah, I'll leave it at that. Well, and the way that Abraham is a pushover in this story, pa- that Abraham seems entirely passive here. He says, I'm here. And then he just follows orders after that point where, you know, he's not willing to to fight with with God about the fact that God is asking him to sacrifice his own son, right? And oftentimes the story is painted as like, this is what faith looks like. You should have faith so extreme that you're willing to even murder your child, right, to be able to do this. But I think that that story is so contrasted by the fact that Abraham's grandson, who only existed because God intervened and didn't allow Abraham to sacrifice his son, his grandson wrestles with God, right? And that that metaphor is the central metaphor of the Jewish faith, is not a, that Christianity has taken this story and said, oh, our example is to sacrifice their own children, but Judaism has taken the opposite example and said, no, our job is to wrestle with God, to struggle with God, to try and figure out what is God trying to do here in this text and do here in this moment, right? And Abraham does not resist at all. Abraham was willing to resist God when it was Sodom and Gomorrah, but for some reason, he is an entirely passive agent here in this story. Yeah, isn't that interesting? Because just a few chapters earlier, we see him essentially wrestling with God over Sodom, yeah. you know, protect Sodom and Gore. If there's even just, you know, 50 righteous people, would you, you do away this entire nation? And yet here he is with his, you know, only son of the covenant yeah. and he's just walking passively up the mountain. There's so many interpretations of this story. I mean, famously, I think it's Kierkegaard, right? Who like wrestled through this with a whole bunch of different interpretations. But before that, of course, by a long shot, there's just dozens of of Hebrew commentaries and Mishnah and and things like that. Looking at this chapter, I found a couple really interesting, uh, I forgot the word for them, but they're like Jewish Bible fan theories, um, like extra biblical (laughs) stuff about... uh, Midrash. Yeah, maybe it is about the Satan and how he's involved Mm. in this story. And and I hope this isn't jumping back too much. The the verse verse two: Take your son, the only uh, your only son, the one you love. It it would be horrible to move on from that verse without pointing out that this is the first time in the Bible that the word love is used. Twenty two chapters in, and the word ahava is finally used to describe this relationship between a father and a son. It wasn't used in the creation story. It wasn't used for any of the parents or children before this point. 22 chapters in and we get finally the word love. But who loves? Abraham. Sarah's voice is, is completely erased in this one, which, which connects partly to the, yeah, the midrash of Satan's, Hasatan's involvement is that there's these ideas of, did Abraham discuss this with his wife? Did he tell her what he was planning on doing? How did she feel about this? Did she love Isaac? You better bet it. Like she was mm-hmm. what she was willing to do to Hagar earlier because of this. And jumping way ahead, the very first sentence of verse 23, once this whole drama is over, Sarah dies. Why? And and the the Midrash is is claiming that Satan came up to her and like whispered in her ear, Hey, your husband is uh, just about to sacrifice your son on this mountain right now. And she dies from the shock. So again, whose voices are allowed to have presence and, and, and speak? And who gets agency in making a choice? Not just for, because this boy has two parents. <laughs> and, and it's worth pointing out, a uh, longtime listener will remember that Ahasatan in, in the ancient Israelite religion 
is not the devil, right? It's not Satan. Yeah. He is a prosecutor, right? And a prosecutor at least should only bring up things that are true in the case, right? And so, although, you know, in the New Testament, Satan is the author of lies, right? In this mm-hmm. story, he is just bringing up what's actually the case to Sarah. Mm-hmm. And that reality causes Sarah to die, right? That reality is death bringing, right? And importantly, too, that Hasatan was on God's counsel. You know, this is not the adversary in the way that, you know, a New Testament orientation might interpret. This is one of God's own angels who is doing the truth-telling. Which is a reminder that truth-telling without the proper amount of love can be deadly, right? (laughs) And that if you think that you're telling the truth and it's not done in a loving way, it is not the truth. That is something worth (laughs) worth pointing out to every person who is standing up at pride with a hateful slogan is that if you are not actually telling the truth in love, it's not the truth because Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and God is love. If we actually think that Jesus is God, then you have no ontological method to say that truth and love are separate things, and it is not loving to condemn people for who they love. That's a good word. <laughs> um, it's also worth mentioning this strange place, the land of Moria. Um, so first off, it's not the mines of Moria, as my uh, my dearly <laughs> beloved wanted to say as soon as I talked about this this passage, but the mines of Moria are actually somewhat related, right? Where Moria is, uh, is only mentioned again as the place where the Temple of Solomon is ultimately established, where this is the place that uh, sacrifice happens in these ways. But um, Moria there's a there's a bunch of different possible interpretations of the text. It could be something like the teaching place. This is where Abraham goes mm-hmm. to learn this really profound lesson he has to learn. Um, it mm-hmm. could be the place of fear, the place where you are in this terrible state because of what you're facing here. Um, and I, I'm looking to Al because Al always corrects my hatred of Abraham by humanizing him in a way that, that I always appreciate. Um, and the fact that this That's is a place sure. of fear. Um, but another thing that I... Another possible interpretation is that Moria is the place of the Amorites, the place of Amoria. And the Mount of Amoria, it would be important because the Amorites are this foreign people who go on to become the Babylonians, right? Who go on to become the Hammurabi, the lawgiver, was an Amorite whose ancestors had become in charge of Babylon. And so this story is really important because it is claiming that child sacrifice happens in one of these other groups, right? That the, the Amorites, at least the Bible describes, the Ammonites, a related group to the Amorites, participated in child sacrifice, that child sacrifice was something that happened all over the place in the ancient Near East, according to the Bible. Now, whether or not that happened historically is a different question, but according to the mythos of the Bible, child sacrifice happened all over the place. And so, claiming that this is the Mount of Amoria, the ancestors of the Babylonians, is again telling a message to the people who are reading this story, who are in the Babylonian captivity, who are the children of the people who have been sacrificed to the Babylonians, right? There is this deep uh, class discussion going on here that wouldn't make sense unless you know that there is this deep relationship that the ancient Near Eastern folks knew. and so the idea that that this story is being told to a people who have been sacrificed like children, right? The children of the people who ultimately lost the kingdom of Israel, sorry, the, the kingdom of Judah, and were taken into the Babylonian captivity, they are relating deeply to this story and then are interrupted and they are saved, right, by this introduction of a scapegoat instead. Yeah, that the, the context that this story is being recited in in their oral tradition is not one in which child sacrifice is out of the question. It's one where, you know, they would not hear it with our 21st century ears and say, oh my goodness, how could someone do that? It's, oh yeah, that's something that takes place, right? And so for God to ask this of Abraham is not something that would surprise anyone. And then what happens well in Isaac being rescued in in God's providence, we hear an alternative message of a God who is not like everything else that they've been exposed to. I think that that makes a lot of sense to me. I, I sometimes I get the we don't we don't when do we get the pro the biblical prohibition against sacrificing children? Is that not until Leviticus eighteen? Yep. yep. Yeah. So like at least chronologically, if yeah, that that's really interesting. Like where 
where does God clarify God's own stance on this? It, like, does this instance of saying, psych, hold on, wait, don't kill the kid, enough to establish a precedent going forward? Yeah, I don't know. So our friend Derek, who I previously misidentified as Don in a previous episode, thank you to the commenter who pointed that out. Um, <laughs> Derek often talks about Rene Girard and Girardian interpretation of this text, which is that there was basically human bloodlust, right? That we, we want a rival. And so human sacrifice becomes a, a way of fulfilling that sort of desire, but that the story of the Bible is the story of, of God basically overcoming that human bloodlust, right? That here we start with a story where it seems like God is demanding human sacrifice, and that is what Abraham would have expected, right? That Abraham expected this to happen, and so that is why he seems to be so passive in this story, that, that he goes, okay, well, this is what was going to happen anyway, because, you know, this is the God that wiped out the whole earth in the story of Noah and wiped out Sodom and Gomorrah, so I should expect that this God is going to ask for me to sacrifice my kid as well. The idea that, that God would ask of a human sacrifice is not out of the realm of possibility for the ancient Near East. And so Abraham goes along with this knowing that this was likely to happen in the first place. But instead of God actually asking for this, God is setting this whole scenario up so that God can say, no, this actually isn't the way that we're going to operate. You want bloodlust. You expect bloodlust. I'm going to meet you at your level, and then I'm going to show you a better way by giving you the scapegoat instead. To offer an alternative interpretation here too, even though this was culturally to be expected, even within the God of Israel, you know, proto-Israel, I still think that Abraham would have been deeply surprised by this ask, specifically mm. because Isaac is the child of the covenant that was promised to him. Yeah. What I see here is you know, God making a covenant with Abraham saying, I'm going to make you a father of many nations. Abraham being like, okay, I'll be faithful. I've been faithful this whole time, you know, journeying through Ur, everything, and gets to the place of, okay, you are going to be with child. And he's like, what are you talking about? I'm 100 years old. Sarai's <laughs> 90 years old. Like, this is, it just, this can't happen. And so he doubts God's providence. He doubts God's capacity to work with him. And, you know, within that, there's this accommodation where then he has um, Hagar. He lays with Hagar and they have Ishmael who God ends up, I think this is an important part too, that even though Ishmael was the child of their disobedience, God still blesses Ishmael. Mm -hmm. God still makes him a father of nations. And I think that's an incredibly important point here that he was not the result of their faithfulness. And so God being faithful to God's own story, God is the author mm -hmm. of the story says, you will still have a son because I said that you will have a son. And here he is. This is Isaac. And now Abraham's like, whoa, what a God. <laughs> Didn't believe it was possible, but here we are. But Abraham still has this mindset of distrust. Abraham is still woven into this way of thinking that he knows what's best, that he, you know, he has the capacity to doubt God. And so God says, I'm going to put you to the ultimate test. Now, I think in this test context, it's important to know in an Eastern context, there was a, a rabbinic tradition of teaching through uh, example that there would be an experience that they would go through, the students would go through in order to learn a message rather than just having it be a verbal message that they learn so that they can learn it deep in their bones. And so uh, what we'll jump to, you know, later in the book of Exodus, we see probably the most profound example of this rabbinic teaching, which is God leading the Hebrews through the desert, you know, through mm -hmm. the wilderness for 40 years. Here's a sense that they have imbibed the culture of empire. And God says, that is not my way. And mm -hmm. so even as they think that they're, you know, going to die, they're suffering, why can't we just have it be that way? It's almost like they're detoxing from mm -hmm. this drug that is empire that they have been imbibing for this time and, and reverting back to their orientation that God has designed, which is to be in trusting relationship with God, where God provides for your tomorrow. It's not providing for your year ahead, you know, where you can stock up things and, you know, for the time being, be okay without God. It's like, no, this consistent, consistent trust in God. And so there's this one example where Abraham is unfaithful. He says, I don't think I can trust you. And God says, okay, we need to detox from that. Mm. We need you to learn this lesson in the way that is most extreme. And that lesson is, here's the child that you didn't think you could have that I miraculously provided for you, now I want you to kill that child. Mm. What do you think of my providence now? What do you think of my ability to show up for you? And so I'm, I'm, my hunch <laughs> is that Abraham, that whole way, 
was dreading this moment. You know, here is all of his sense of needing, needing to lean into trusting God that was so hard for him, but he took it step after step up that mountain. And then in the end, God was faithful. God provided in a way that he couldn't have predicted. So to me, I hear this as a story that God is detoxing Abraham from his own lack of total devotion to God. I don't see this story as detoxing Abraham's lack of devotion. You know, you you have called him passive, but this story shows me that Abraham's like trust in God is absolute at its strict, like its highest peak. Abraham doesn't argue with God. He doesn't question God. He quote unquote submits, but I think he holds on to the promises that God has already made. Like, he was told he'd be the father of nations. He was told, like, his son Isaac would inherit all of this. And he doesn't think God's going to go back on this promise, even though he's being asked to take him up the mountain and offer his son as a burnt offering. Mm. I think Abraham knows this is, like, God's toxic bestie qualities (laughs) coming through, and he's just going to trust. Because, I mean, the— this is the culmination of their friendship. This is a the point where like they are the bestiest of buds. And yeah, God's asking for a child sacrifice, but then God sends his own child to be sacrificed like later on. So it's it it just feels like part of the covenant of everything, like the mutual give and take required of relationship with God. I hear what you're saying, El, though. Like, verse 5, it specifically says, to the point of Abraham's faith, it says, Abraham said to his servants, stay here with the donkey, the boy and I will go walk up there, worship, and then come back to you. I think, like, it's totally possible that Abraham could, like, lie to his servants, but he seems to indicate to them, at least, hey, I'm, we're both going to be back. And, mm-hmm. and he spoke the truth, whether he knew he was going yep. to or not. So here's my question to that, and I'm not I'm not disagreeing as much as you know. Can, um, let's let's wrestle with this together. What would have happened if no voice came? Like, would the knife have gone down on Isaac? Would he have waited there, holding it above him for hours? <laughs> I mean, you you could probably hear the distressful cries of a ram stuck in the underbrush. Like, when did that get put there? You know. <laughs> I mean, and- it it could be it wasn't a voice that called out to him, but then they got up there. Abraham tied Isaac to the altars, about to like, and he saw a ram in the underbrush, mm-hmm. seeing that God provided an offering instead. And he heard it in his heart. Your faithfulness was strong. I provided the offering instead of your son. Mm-hmm. Like you believed you did it. We've repaired yeah. at least one one human relationship with God. Well, and I, I love that that take on it, L. And Scott McCandless in Retelling the Bible, another one of our podcast collabs, his take on this on this passage leaves God out of it entirely. That this story, mm-hmm. if I'm remembering correctly, that God doesn't show up in his retelling of the story. But Abraham goes up here to sacrifice his son because uh, Abraham is convinced that that's what it is. But Abraham, desperate out of love for his child, looks for anything else that he can do. And so finds this ram up there and says, oh, this must be God's will instead, right? And I got to be honest, I love that interpretation because if we're being asked to do this terribly hard thing that is not in line with our values, we should look for the out. We should look for the Mm. other sign because I think that that is a sign that it is not coming from a good place, right? That if we're being asked to do something that is going to, that is going to hurt the people that we love, I don't think we're being asked that by God. So we have to test that, that spirit by something else. Mm. And also the, the, to go back to your point on the fact that God would then go and send their own child to do this, right? The difference being that Isaac has no chance to consent, right? Isaac has no chance to say, yes, I want to do this. Isaac just goes along with this, not knowing what it is. Now, I like the idea that Abraham is being faithful, like Byron said, that the lamb for the entirely burnt offering, God will see to it, and he trusts that that will happen. Abraham comes in here fully expecting God to fix the scenario. But I think that the difference between Abraham and Isaac and God and Jesus is that 
at least according to my faith, I, I hold to the Nicene Creed that Jesus has coexisted with God forever and so and is one with God, right? Jesus can consent to this, that Jesus did not regard equality with God as something to be clinged to, but instead became a sacrifice for us, right? And so Jesus consented, Isaac doesn't. Also, Jesus is God, is part of God. Isaac is just the offspring, right? And so, you know, I, I do, I absolutely hear that comparison, but that God is going to be faithful and do whatever God needs to do to provide love for us, I think is is what I want to take out of that story. <laughs> I should say, first of all, I, I love a lot of that. I, I wanted to, to question that aspect of Isaac's own lack of agency. He asks, where's the sacrifice? And I don't know, I, again, whether, I mean, unless he was really a little boy, even a teenager could have fought against a 99-year-old man. Yeah, And a lot of the, there's, we talked about this in one of my teaching the Bible classes. There's a difference between Protestant and Catholic depictions of this scene. I believe it's Catholic depictions where Isaac is shown kneeling in submission as opposed to Protestant uh, depictions, which show him lying down kind of helpless. And I, th I think there's something to be said about Isaac's own uh, trust and his own agency and his own choice there that doesn't go against a kind of Christological take either. Yeah, that is really interesting because why does Isaac have to be a passive character? Like, if he witnesses his father's faithfulness so completely throughout his life, if he's listened to, like, this is my God, you are the special boy that God gave me, why wouldn't Isaac also have, like, a, a faithfulness to what his father's saying? I want to hear that perspective and also push back as someone who was raised in a cult that we should not have that perspective <laughs> in our own circumstances, right? Where so often we are in these power dynamics with someone who we think has great faith. That faith, of course, almost always is appealing to their own power, is appealing to their own hierarchy, is appealing to their own position. And then they ask sacrifices of us rather than of themselves, right? The, the powerful leader will ask for people to go back to work so the economy reopens so that the billionaires don't lose some more money, right? The the powerful leader will say, of course, we have to keep those migrants out because we can't allow the disease to spread, but everyone within the country has to go back to work, right? The, the powerful leader will come and say, you have to give up your life. You have to sacrifice your grandma. You have to do these things and these things and these things. And it's your it's your duty because I'm being faithful, because I'm being patriotic, because I'm doing my civic duty to sacrifice you rather than to make a self-sacrifice of, of any way. Now, I, I think that, that, is, that that's not what's happening here in the story, right? That Abraham, again, the ancient Near East does not have a concept of the afterlife. Abraham's concept of the afterlife is that his descendants will go on through Isaac to fulfill the covenant. That is his concept of the afterlife. He is condemning himself to eternal, the, the equivalent of eternal damnation by offering up his son, and yet he is willing to do it. That is a real sacrifice versus the way that cult leaders and the powerful, the cult leaders of the United States, the, the civic religion, right, is willing to offer up those of us who have been left outside, the Ishmaels of our society, but it actually doesn't come at any cost to them. But in that case, then I feel like what you just said really supports that this is a lesson to make sure Abraham fully understands that mm -hmm. your child is not your property and mm -hmm. not yours. It's not really you. Mm -hmm. And there's, uh, you know, we all belong to God and that's definitely what's God's make what God is making clear right now mm. but if Abraham's idea of self and like sustainment and future longevity is directly through Isaac then there's no separation between parent and child in ancient times I mean even in these times we have parents who feel complete and total ownership over their children like their property and that they're, that they're an extension of their self and their ego mm -hmm. and today we still like see parents sacrificing their own children for the sake of like worldly ego and permanence because the child's not fitting right in line with whatever the parent envisions mm -hmm. so this kind of goes back to what i said i don't I don't remember which abraham episode it was 
But the commonality between God and Abraham is they are life longing for life itself. But this is the lesson that like that life does not belong to you, really. Mm. One of the ways that this text has been used uh, both by Christians and by Jews is understanding the relationship of humanity to the divine in terms of sacrifice, in terms mm-hmm. of death. You know, in Romans, we get this idea that the wages of sin is death. There's this direct connection between sin or disobedience, or um, I like to say uh, spiritual wandering a separation from God and death because God is life. God is the author of life, the provider of life, life itself, the way, the truth, the life. And so there is this history then of the sacrifice of animals. But it's interesting to me, the way that the voice of God speaks about these sacrifices, how death was from the very beginning, a consequence of sin, not something beautiful in itself, not something desirable. It was always And people might disagree about this word, but I might say an accommodation to Mm -hmm. our human sinfulness. And the first death that we see is God clothing Adam and Eve with the skin of an animal. Does that mean that God didn't care about that animal? I I don't think so. I think what it is, is saying that humans now entered into the circle of life. And so all of their needs are now going to be in the same kind of providence as other animals. They eat each other, they use each other for, you know, shelter and, and whatnot. Um, there's kind of an equalizing of all living beings in that way. So this ram, I think we often miss this in the story that we say, oh, look, God saved Isaac. Well, what about the poor ram? Does its <laughs> life not matter? Right? You know, and, and here there's this continual consequence of sin is that no matter what happens, there's going to be death. There's going to be death. And so text uh, Isaiah 58, is this not the fast I choose rather than it being burnt offerings, it being about um, fighting oppression, breaking the yokes of tyranny, of slavery, in Amos, I despise your burnt offerings. Revelation 21, we see this, you know, hope for the future. Death shall be no more. Isaiah 11 also talks about this. The wolf shall live the lamb, uh, the lion lay down with the kid, etc., etc. That, that, that there's an end of all death, including the deaths of animals. And I want to make sure that this, you know, we, we don't just think about animals as this thing that we can kill as part of the way that we go about things. But it was always an accommodation as a result of the consequence of sin rather than it being something good in and of itself. Spoken like a true vegan. And I, I, don't, mean that in, I don't mean that in any derisive sort of way. I'm, I'm really serious. Yeah, yeah. There's something disturbingly un-vegan about the whole system of sacrifice. It, it was notable to me a couple months ago as I was reading the dedication story of Jesus in, as a kid. His parents were so poor that they couldn't make the traditional offering, so they offered instead, I think, two doves. And so even for Jesus's birth, there's a consequence of the death of those animals. And I can't imagine a heaven where that isn't taken fully into account. And the soul of all of those little animals are, are welcomed up into, into God's arms. Because presumably, before Adam and Eve, humans could or were expected to live in a vegan sort of way. Absolutely. And I I think that from a Girardian perspective, right, it is about accommodating us, where it is, we have this bloodlust that is just core to to our rivalries, our attempt to, to other everything else. But our God is the God who so loved the whole world, not just my particular group, not just my particular in-group, not just good Christian leftists, right? But everybody, even the people that really, really annoy me, um, <laughs> even the people who want my death, God still loves those people. And so the violence of the sacrificial system in the death of Jesus Christ is this conquest of sin and death, right? Jesus dies, and I don't think that Jesus died because God wanted Jesus to die. I think that Jesus died because humanity was violent enough that we saw the being that was literally love and killed it, right? And that is what empire does, right? We have to remember that the Jewish people did not kill Jesus, the Romans did, right? And there were people in power who wanted to see Jesus dead because Jesus was a challenge to their own authority right? And some of those leaders were Jewish, but it was ultimately the empire that decided he was going to die. My savior was killed by the cops, right? Just repeat that as often as possible. Um, (laughs) But but that Jesus's death 
death was not the point, his life was the point. That love became incarnate in the world is the purpose of Christ's existence, incarnation, right? And that when Christ died and then came back to life, his victory over death was complete. That he allowed us to no longer have to make any sacrifices. There were no longer accommodations because now the thing that we sacrifice to God is death itself, where the sin that we carry on, our love of money, is a form of death because we are clinging to this life. Um, we're clinging to a life that ultimately results in the suffering of others. It is a form of death. We sacrifice that death and in exchange get life. If we are addicted to systems of violence, that is a form of death that has a hold in our lives. And the way that we get rid of that is that we sacrifice death to God and instead get life in exchange. Oh, Micah, how delightfully orthodox. I love it. (laughs) (laughs) Every once in a while. (laughs) Yeah, I love that. If I can add to that, too, that death and hell is not just something that is external to, you know, an afterlife or other context. It's something that is actively present here. Our wandering in, in you know, so-called darkness, although, you know, that word has been violently used as well, in this life is a death. It is a hell. And so when God entered into the world, God was bringing the light to the world in, in the darkness. As God was entering into the death, God brought life. And so for Jesus to enter into death as life itself, we, we can think about it, and, and I'm not trying to erase the significance or importance of the resurrection, um, but that life entering into death itself was redemptive. Mm-hmm. For Jesus as life to die, that light couldn't be snuffed out. That light was entering into death. It was entering into hell. And so that is relevant for our lives today as well, that in the ways that we wander in death, life is already present. Mm-hmm. The life that is God is present in our midst. Death loses its sting because even death, life now resides. Well, thank you, Char, Byron, and Elle, for this wonderful conversation. We are going to continue it because we don't want to drop a single minute of this fascinating conversation. So please come and join us next time, and thank you all again. And thank you, dear listener, for all that you are doing to share this podcast all over the place. We so appreciate it growing by leaps and bounds. We, of course, did not do any advertising, and we don't have any adverts on this (laughs) podcast. And so we are only able to sustain because of the generosity of this community and your commitment to helping this community grow. So thank you so much, and I hope to just see it continue to grow. Now, past Micah, take it away. Thank you, Future Micah, and of course you, our wonderful listener. Together we have made a wonderful and growing community on Discord that I look forward to being a part of every day. Your generous support on Patreon has already greatly increased the quality of our podcast, including this very outro. As an extra little thank you, you can get episodes early along with a bunch of other cool perks. Please follow the link in the show notes to join our Discord, Patreon, and all of the other things mentioned throughout this episode. If you would like to reach me directly, you can reach me through the Discord or by email at the word in black and red at gmail.com. Now, future Micah, say the profound shit. And thank you, past Micah. And now go, friends. Go into a land that seeks to sacrifice each one of us. And be faithful, so that God will provide us a way out. Shalom. Shalom.